Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. Embracing what's fun with Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080. Spotlight Connecticut is in vacation mode. I'm recharging my batteries, coming up with new ideas for Spotlight Connecticut going into the rest of 2023 now that we are kind of in the middle of the year. But what I wanted to do was look back on some episodes that we had, some interviews, some guests that turned out especially nice and especially good. And if you're listening to this music here, you might be thinking about one episode from January and you might be thinking about our overnight talk show, Coast to Coast AM, hosted by George Norrie. George, who has been hosting that show now for 20 years full-time as of January this year. I've been a big fan and... Um, and one of these days, I'm going to get to one of his live stage shows. Don't know when, don't know where, don't know how, but one of these days, I'll get to one of his live events. When it dawned on me that it had been 20 years since he took over the show, and WTIC has been carrying the program now since 1995, based on my research, when Art Bell was hosting it, I said, we've got to get George on. I want George on the show, and I think it impressed a lot of people I was able to get him because he's on over 650 radio stations in the country. So he's a busy guy. Uh, I mean, it was April, and I was still getting tweets, you know, people that saw or heard the podcast or um, heard that they missed it the first time around. Uh, I swear, it was still April, four months after the interview aired, and people were like, oh, my God, Morgan. You got George on the show? Why, yes, I did. And if you didn't know that, um, maybe you're not even aware of what we do overnights on WTIC. We're going to play that again. I think this was the most talked about interview I had on Spotlight Connecticut so far this year. Blew my mind. We'll have part of it on the way. This is WTIC in Hartford. Hi, this is Caitlin in Hebron, and you're listening to Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. Morgan Cunningham here with you on Spotlight Connecticut. Boy, do we have a show for you today. I've been looking forward to this show now for a few weeks. It's been hard for me to keep it quiet up until this past week, but yes, George Dory's with us. He hosts our overnight program, Coast to Coast AM. Coast to Coast AM is heard on over 600, I think 650 radio stations across the country. Again, the host is George Nori. He's been hosting the show since 2003, full-time. We've had him all that time on our station. Before that, our relationship began with Coast to Coast AM in 1995, with the original host and founder, Art Bell. And I know George isn't a Connecticut guy. He doesn't live in Connecticut, but again, he has been a big part of our station for all these years, and we're a big part of Connecticut. Also, I think that there's some interest here because some daytime folks probably don't know what we're up to at night on WTIC. George, pleasure to have you on the show. Morgan, it's a pleasure to be with you. What a great station. Your area is so gorgeous. I was there oh, about 12 years ago, and it's just one of the best. 12 years too long, George. We need you back out here. My mother was born in Boston, so maybe I'll get out that way. Oh, that would be great. That would be great. Maybe bring one of your events to town. That could be. That's a good idea. George, how long have you been doing this overnight radio thing? You started back when you were hosting the Nighthawk on KTRS. That was the mid-90s, wasn't it? Morgan, i got to tell you, I've been in this business since I was 19 years old, uh, all facets of it. Television, I was a news manager, an executive, owned my own production company. Back in 1996, I wanted to recreate my career, and I saw a movie called Talk Radio with Eric Bogosian. And I went, you know what? That's one thing I haven't done yet. I haven't done talk radio. 
So I called up a few stations in St. Louis, and they said, uh, yeah, we were interested. They knew who I was, and uh, in I went. And I started doing some part-time work at a station in St. Louis called KMOX. And from there, I got heard by KTRS, another station in St. Louis, and they said, we've got a late-night program for you. I need you in a midnight to 4 a.m. slot to replace a show we have on the air here called Coast to Coast. And I went, oh, my gosh. And in I went. And then they moved me back down to 9 to midnight and picked up Coast to Coast again. And that opened up the door to allow me to fill in for Art Bell whenever he took time off. And then the rest is history, Morgan. How did they find you? How did Arts Network discover George down in St. Louis? We had a guy named Mike Siegel working for us. He was out of Seattle, and he replaced Art Bell. And I knew him, and I called him up, and I said, Michael, if you ever need somebody to fill in for you, let me know. Because I had interviewed most of the same guests that Art had, Morgan. So I was very familiar with the format and those kinds of things. And Mike said, sure, send me a tape. I'll hand it to the executives. They liked it. And Mike took a day off. I filled in for him. He took another day off. I filled in for him. And then a few months later, they decided Art wanted to come back. And uh, they uh, replaced Mike Siegel with Art Bell again and kept me on as his backup. And look what happened. There's some kind of story. I don't know if it's folklore or what, but there was a story where you would wait, and if Art Bell came on, then you did not host for Art, but if Art didn't start, then you went and hosted for him. How did that work? That's kind of crazy. They never knew. When Art said he wasn't going to go on or he was going to go on, they really never knew if he was going to go on. So they had me as standby. I would do my St. Louis show from 9 to midnight, and then uh, in Central West time, I would do Coast to Coast from midnight to four. That's when Coast to Coast came on. Well, they would call me and say 12 minutes or so before Coast to Coast time. They would say, we're not sure Art's going to be on tonight. We need you to be ready. And I said, okay. So they'd send me the prep material. I'd quickly prep it during commercial breaks of my local show. And then I'd go into the other studio when Coast to Coast was ready to go on. And the announcer would say, or their board op would say, if you don't hear art, you're on. And I went, okay. So I'd stand there and the coast to coast theme would start playing and we wouldn't hear art. And the guy's yelling me in my ear, you're on, you're on. And I'd start from the city of angels or wherever I was. (laughs) And off we went. George, we're talking to a daytime audience. And I know this for a fact that we do have listeners from overnight that are listening during days, but primarily my talk show is a daytime program. How would you explain Coast to Coast AM? Because nighttime radio is just such a different breed, and Coast is its own kind of show. How would you explain it to somebody who either never heard it or is a daytime person, not so much a nighttime person? We handle stories that are unusual, somewhat controversial, somewhat scary, whether it's ghosts, spiritual, supernatural, conspiratorial. We'll do a lot of that. Now, my background, Morgan, is heavy in news. So we'll devote a couple hours to the first hours to current events, but with a coast-to-coast twist, a different angle. And uh, it's really become an exciting program for a lot of people. And as you know, we're live on holidays. We don't run tapes. And people just love it. But its I would just call it a very unusual, entertaining show. 
there was something always to me working at a coast affiliate, and I started out in overnights. There was just something great about being there doing live news during your program, local news, but knowing that you guys were live on a holiday. I didn't feel alone because some people at night, they feel alone, but the coast presence helps make them not feel alone. That is exactly why we broadcast live on holidays. There's so many lonely people out there that might not have friends and family. This radio show has become their family. And I made a pledge to them 20 years ago when I took over the program that we will work holidays. And if a holiday falls on my regularly scheduled workday, I'll be there. If it's on a weekend, my weekend people will be there. But we're live on Christmas, Christmas Eve, Thanksgiving, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, you name it, Memorial Day, July 4th. We're there all the time because there are lonely people who turn to this radio station as their family. And I'm not going to let them down. Some of the holidays even have their own topics, like New Year's. You guys do the prediction show. What's that all about? Absolutely. It's a great way to start the new year where psychics and astrologers and mystics come on the air and give us their thoughts about how the upcoming year is going to be. And then generally we'll bring them back the next year and see how they did. And some of the accuracy rate is uncanny on some of their predictions, whether it's a war or economic issues or political things or just strange stuff. They're pretty good. Can't forget Ghost to Ghost either. Ghost to Ghost is our pre-Halloween night show, or it'll be on Halloween night if Halloween night is during the week, where our listeners call in with their favorite ghost stories, and we just let the phones go. And i got to tell you, We've got 10 lines, and they're all packed all the time. How does Tommy screen all the calls? Because there's literally a flood, Tommy, the producer, for those of you who don't know the program, because there is just so many calls when you guys open up the phones, and uh, you've got the West of the Rockies, East of the Rockies, first-time caller line. How do you guys keep it all straight? I keep Tommy's tail running, I'll tell you that, Morgan. He doesn't stop. (laughs) He's He's in his little production booth. Those phones ring. He gets them. And what we do is we don't screen out calls. What we listen for is whether somebody's inebriated or, you know, some people may call up cussing, and I don't permit permit that on the air at all. And, you know, and he'll knock them off. He won't put them on. But uh, generally the calls that come in are from reliable, good listeners, and um, it's his job to just put east of the Rockies, west of the Rockies, wherever they're calling from, and we get them on that way. As far as the format goes, usually each night you guys have two guests, one for the first two hours and then the second guest for the second two hours. And there are some variations, but that's the most common format for Coast to Coast AM. You guys spend an hour or just about interviewing that guest. Then you open up to the phone calls and bring in listener comments. I've got to make note about your interviewing style. You are so patient with these guests and you let them talk. You let them have an opportunity to speak. You're not yelling at them. You're not cutting them off, which you might hear or some people might hear on political radio. That's not my way. That's uh, I've never been that kind of confrontational interviewer. I figure that I can get what I need out of a guest by being kind to them and respectful. And I get that time and time again, Morgan, from our guests with the feedback they give us later. They say, you really gave me an opportunity to explain myself 
And then you interjected at the right time. You came in and did this and that. And um, I try to do it without putting them down. I mean, people will call and say they've been abducted by aliens. 95% of the other media would be, you know, belittle them and make fun of them. I don't. You know, if, if they actually think this happened to them, I'm going to listen and find out why. And it works. Let's say it's me. You get a phone call from me and I tell you, George, I was abducted by an alien. What would you ask me? What would you say to me? I'd say, get some help. No, I'm kidding. But... <laughs> I mean, I, I would talk about what happened to them, what led up to it, what did they do with you, where did they take you, what were you aboard a ship, did they beam you aboard, and uh, I just ask them the questions that really get them interested in what we're doing, and uh, and it's worked. It's worked for the show. We're on 640 radio stations now in North America. Audience level is as high as it's ever been, and it keeps going. Are there any memorable stories that you can recall? People who have called in and said that they saw a UFO, they were abducted, or had a life-after-death experience, whatever it is that might be unusual to some people listening. Is there any one story you, that really I'll stood out you, to you? Yeah, I'll tell you two stories. One is uh, a police officer called me, and they got a call to get to a house of a victim who apparently had a heart attack. And uh, the EMTs were on the way, but the cops got there before they did. And they get to the door and the little old man opens it up and lets them in. And they rush in and they see him lying on his face on the floor of the living room. Well, they flip him over to give him CPR. It's the man who let them in. And they saved the guy's life. Unbelievable. And another story is a guy was fishing off a creek and he sees Bigfoot about 15 feet away from him. He catches two, two fish, and he's holding them. And he said, George, Bigfoot is looking at the two fish. And I went, oh, my God. So he gave Bigfoot the two fish. Bigfoot looks at the guy and gives him one back. Now, you can't make that stuff up. Wow. And these just come from everyday listeners, people who call in and tell you this. They're that trusting in you. Absolutely, especially when we open up the lines, which is generally on a Friday. I had a call from a lady who called and said, George, my husband's been abducted by aliens. And uh, he came in. He's never late. He never comes home late. But he came home sweaty and nervous and told me that aliens abducted him and, and it was unbelievable, George. And you know what else they did? And I went, oh, boy, what? She said, they took his wedding ring off. And uh, I just shook my head and laughed. Let's talk about UFOs for a moment. Do you believe in extraterrestrial life in UFOs? Yes. Personally, I believe that we are not alone. When I was in my uh, 11, 12-year-old age, my mother brought me a book called We Are Not Alone by Walter Sullivan who at the time was the New York Times science writer. And that really got me hooked on listening to life out there and what might be there. And, and I just think, Morgan, this universe is so vast, there's no way that we are the only living species on this universe, in this universe. It's just impossible as far as I'm concerned. They've developed propulsion systems to travel. They're more advanced than we are. We're, you know, our planet's four and a half billion years old. The universe is 14 billion years old. Somebody's had a jump start on us, and their technology is way beyond anything we can imagine. But we're not alone. You know, we're trying to figure out who are we, what are we doing here, what's God, what did God do, 
And uh, you, when you realize all these pieces of the puzzle, how unusual and wonderful all this is, you realize we're not alone. I'm just wondering, why do they not want us to know for sure whether they exist or not? Wouldn't they make themselves more known? I think they don't think we're ready yet, that we're not there economically, uh, socially. I mean, we've detonated nukes. We've, you know, we're constantly in battle and wars. They probably think these folks just aren't ready yet for our kind of knowledge and technology. And I think that's the real reason why they haven't just landed on the White House lawn and just said, here we are, folks. Boy, that would be a talk show for you. George Norrie, our guest this week on Spotlight Connecticut, a very special guest. George hosts our overnight talk program, Coast to Coast AM, a show that explores everything about the unusual. Oh, absolutely. The phones would be ringing like crazy. It always did amaze me, though. You used to, for the longest time, have Peter Davenport of the National UFO Reporting Center on every week, and he would list off just some of the people who would reach out to him and tell him what they saw, if they saw a UFO or not. Did it ever impress you just how many reports he got? Because I always felt that way. They kept coming in. It's truly amazing. And uh, Peter's uh, a good guy. He had some health issues, so we picked up Kevin Randall, a retired lieutenant colonel who is doing the same kind of things Peter did. But uh, he, Peter's got the National Reporting UFO Center where calls go straight to them. And they don't stop. Those calls just keep coming in. Based on your conversations with guests, do you believe that government disclosure of UFO information, what they may know or what they may not know, do you think that it will come out, say, in the next decade? We don't know. I've told many a guest. I don't expect government disclosure. And even now, with leaking of reports or publishing reports, they're not giving us the full story. So I'm not, I'm not sure, Morgan, if even in 10 years, they're going to come clean and tell us what's going on. Uh, for some reason, they think we can't handle the truth, grabbing uh, a line from the Few Good Men movie. But I think we can. I think we're prepared. And I think most people would say, I knew it. We knew it. And they'd go on with their life. Several months ago, it might have been back in November, possibly October, you had a talk show on being cryogenically frozen. It was mind-blowing to think about waking up in a different world from what we're living in today. It was a fascinating conversation that you had. The former baseball great Ted Williams, who passed away, his head is cryogenically frozen with hopes with one day they will clone his body and put his brain back into that body, or at least the memory of, and he'll be able to be Ted Williams again at a young age. Uh, it's an incredible subject, but there are a number of people who have willed themselves or paid to be cryogenically frozen until one day science is able to revive these people from what they may have died from. It's, it's truly a remarkable story. Wouldn't you be worried yourself if you were cryogenically frozen? Wouldn't you be worried about inflation in, say, 100 or 200 years? If you're a multimillionaire today, it doesn't necessarily mean that in that period of time you'll be rich in the future. Exactly. I don't think I would cryogenically freeze myself. I would move on to the afterlife and just let life 
do what it's supposed to do. Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. A lot of people know that I have diverse interests in music and that I have quite a collection of music. So maybe it surprises some people, but it doesn't surprise others that, yes, in fact, I have songs from World War II that feature an accordion as the sole instrument with a group of, I think, uh, four vocalists there. From 1941, Ma, I Miss Your Apple Pie by the Jesters, a song I probably never thought I'd get to use in a contemporary talk show, but, oh, I was wrong. I did get a chance to use it when we visited Connecticut's Accordion Museum, which is located in North Canaan, Connecticut, way up there in Litchfield County by the corner of New York and Massachusetts, that part of Connecticut there, um, not too far away from the mass border, or the New York line at all, uh, there is a museum that's relatively new. They've only been there for about two years or so. They built up during 2020 when the COVID lockdowns were going on and when things started to open up the following year in 2021 and restrictions eased, then opened Connecticut's Accordion Museum. I was fascinated, absolutely astounded by my visit there. I mean, it's a novelty item to some It's a historic item to others, the accordion that is, and it's very prevalent in other parts of the country, even if not so much here in New England. Um, And when I saw the email from a listener, as I always encourage listeners to email me, morgan.cunningham at odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y, that email again, M-O-R-G-A-N dot Cunningham, C-U-N-N-I-N-G-H-A-M, At odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y, I saw this email come in from a listener that said, Morgan, I got an idea for you. Have you ever been to Connecticut's Accordion Museum in North Canaan, Connecticut? You've got to go. And this was sent to me by a listener, I believe, in Waterford. I'm doing that by memory. And um, I just took one look at that email. I said, this is the kind of topic that will help Spotlight Connecticut pop. So I immediately reached out to Paul Ramuni who runs the museum. He's a curator. He found all the accordions. He takes donations of accordions. He fixes accordions. He sells accordions. I reached out to him. I said, Paul, uh, I'm, I host a talk show with WTIC radio in Hartford, and I want to do a talk show on your, on your museum. He was so thrilled to have my interest. He said, come on up. You're going to be amazed and see what I have. And do a talk show on it. And he couldn't have been nicer. He was so much fun. And I learned a lot, including how prevalent the accordions were in World War II. I didn't even know that. And it might be macabre to think that he has these accordions from concentration camps in World War II and accordions that were played during battle. He does. He has them there in his museum. It might be dark to think about that, but hey, it's history. And somebody's got to preserve that story and information. My interview with Paul on the way. This is WTIC in Hartford. Hi, I'm Eric from Glastonbury, and I'm listening to Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. I'm talking with Paul from the Accordion Museum in North Canaan, Connecticut. A beautiful trip out to Litchfield County. Check it out sometime. Now, here's a loaded question, Paul. There is some serious history in this museum, but I'm looking at three pieces But there are three pieces that trace back to Nazi Germany in the concentration camps. Can you recall coming across these, Paul? Well, that's a big question because I played the accordion originally from 10 to 17 years 
of age, put it away thinking that's enough. 42 years later, I found myself in Vermont. This is 2008 now on a little short vacation. And I woke up on a Wednesday morning and had the urge and inexplicably about playing an accordion. Uh, long story short. And I, it had been how many years? Uh, 42 years. And my wife thought I was ill. She was ready to take me to the emergency room. And, um, but that day I found a guy nearby where we were who had a bunch of them. We were in a renovated garage. What happened is he had a bunch of concertinas that were from the, the German prison camps. And these were up in Vermont. Yeah, they were on the floor and he just happened to have them there at that moment because he, uh, somebody sent them to him to funnel down to the um, uh, Holocaust Museum in Glen Cove, Long Island. And it was really odd that I was there at that very moment to see them. And I couldn't get over the fact that these came from that horrible place, places, I should say. And uh, so he told me the story of how they, how they happened because all these people were brought into these concentration camps during World War II. And if they had their um, accordions with them, the guards would make them play them to see that they can play them. And then if you did, they separated you from your family. They put these people in a group and they scattered them around in different camps to uh, you be used as propaganda. So when the Western media would come around to make the movie reels about what was going on in that camp, there'd be a band there with the accordions and, uh, <laughs> and they would say, see, everything's fine here, there's a band. And it was really not fine, obviously. It was a show, right. It was a show. And that knocked me out. And that made me want to find out more about the backstory on all of these instruments. How did you actually get your hands on several of these? I'm looking at three right here, but how did you actually go about getting these? Because there, I'm imagining can't be too many of them in existence. No, I would think there aren't. Um, it's just a connection with someone I knew in Vermont that happened to have them. And he got them from the family of the gentleman that these came out of Dachau, the camp at Dachau. And the, the family that had these originally uh, their grandfather was with the 82nd Airborne Division in 1945, and he uh, was part of the group that went in to liberate Dachau, and he was an accordion player, so he saw these, and the military said, yeah, take them, take them, and so he brought them, shipped them all home. Wow. So, wow. and here they are, and luckily they're here because I'm able to tell this story to people that come in here. And they don't know anything about it. And, and now on the radio. Now they're on the radio. And uh, I, I, could, um, I could tell you so many more things that came out when I talked to people that knew about these and who played them and what was going on. And it really is, to say the least, sad. But it's real. It's here. Have historians ever come out here either to appraise these or look at them or do research on them? We haven't had anybody do that yet, and uh, it's hard to value them only because of there's no way to prove it. You know what I mean? There's no label or anything on it that said certified um, from a certain camp or something. Um, all you got to go by is word of mouth and that 
you know, knowing the people that we got these from, that they were honest. And uh, when you went to their house, you see photographs and the memories of other things that were related to this. So it must have been true. Tell me how you amassed this collection of how many? Is it nearly 600 you were telling me? Yeah, we're, we're getting closer and closer to 600. We got people that call us that bring up their accordions. They donate them. Uh, on occasion, we will buy something that's rare or important. But what's happening is they find these things in their attic, in their basement garages. And, you know, Aunt Tilly played one and we can't throw it away. We don't know what to do with it please give it a good home. And so they come in with them and uh, they're very important. What was the deciding moment, Paul, and I'm speaking with Paul of the Accordion Museum, what made you decide that you're going to start collecting these and eventually start a little museum here at a repair shop too? Mm. Well, we do that too. We repair, we sell, we have a museum. You know what happened? Um, I just got into it, and when people like these um, um, wartime accordions and the stories that I got from people, you realize what you're hearing is something very important. It wasn't just entertainers. It wasn't just a, an instrument that, gee, that's nice, you played it. But they played it in, in places that hospitals where people were dying, in, in trenches during World War I, We've got accordions there. Um, and you realize they were playing these things at moments in people's lives that were about to expire. We've got D-Day accordions here. Uh, they were played on the ships as they got the men ready for going in and invading uh, in, in D-Day. You also have, and people of a certain generation in our audience on Spotlight Connecticut today, they'll know the name, Lawrence Welk. Lawrence Welk's, Welky, his very first accordion. And it comes from the Polish American Club in Sarasota, Florida. I think this was also another connection you had with a friend, right? Yes, I had a friend who was an accordionist. He happened to be down in Florida. Oh, this is maybe 10 years ago now. And um, he was sitting in the uh, Polish American Club, and there was an accordion sitting on the shelf all by itself. And liking accordions, he asked uh, someone there that, what was that accordion? He, and he was told that Lawrence Wolk had a house down there at one point for a long time, and he was a member of the club. And then Mr. Welk sold the house and was moving away, and he took his initial original accordion and gave it to them as a memento, a gift, if you will. So this was sitting on the shelf all by itself. And my friend, my friend asked the bartender or someone there if they really wanted to have the accordion. And they said, well, maybe it's time to move it along. And he took it and brought it back up and called me and said, this belongs in your museum. And so we've got his uh, first accordion. Looking at Lawrence Welk's accordion and the ones that were played on D-Day and all of them, I'm looking at all of them, there's... Just in this room alone, I'm looking at 400 accordions, and I do not see one. I see some that are similar in appearance, but I don't see any one that actually looks like another. Is that because you've looked for ones that are different, or did they not make an accordion like any other? Were they all different designs? Uh, if you had all the accordions ever made, you would see similarities for sure. But 
I'll tell you how they made these things. When they were first conceived, they tried to make them to be the same way we are. So they have the same assets, they have the same abilities. If you have a group of people standing together, 500 of them, whatever it is, from a distance we all look alike. When you get up close, you see, whoa, there's differences. Same thing with the accordions. They're all different, but they each have a, a voice, the sound, which is different. No two accordions have the exact same sound. Um, they have buttons and keys, but even the buttons and the keys will react differently from one accordion to the next. Players will tell you that. Um, and it has a pair of lungs, just like we do. And they call it the bellows. And the air goes in and out, just like it does for us. Accordions have feet. They call them two, four little um, pads that it sits on, just like we have feet. And then there is the, um, uh, what's the other thing? The tempo. Uh, tempo in an accordion is like a, a heartbeat in a person. So you're right. They, nothing is exactly the same. And that's what gives it tremendous variety and ingenuity to make these things work. I take them apart and repair them. It's like opening up a clock from 150 years ago and you're looking at how did they make this? No internet, no books, no magazines, no hardware stores, no supply depots. There's just raw ingenuity. You're in a shop, it's probably cold, and you've got to make this thing look good. Artistry is incredible. And sound good. And, and sounds good, and it's got to work every time. They've weathered that storm. Second to last question for All you, right. Paul. Can you play a tune for us? <laughs> I'll give it a whirl. <laughs> All right, so for those of you in Spotlight Connecticut's radio audience land, he's going over to an accordion. How heavy are these? How heavy? They're about anywhere, well, depending on the size, you can go from uh, 20 pounds to around 28 pounds. But what I can describe to you and your listeners... This is a beautiful wooden one. Well, it looks like wood, but it's... But been, it's not? It's not. It was made in 1993. And what they did, believe it or not, is they gave this an automotive paint job. So. <laughs> okay, well, I wasn't expecting that. That's not at all what it looks like to my eye. Yeah, and it looks like wood, um, and it was made in Italy uh, by Giuseppe Verdi Company, and it celebrates, it celebrates their uh, 100 years of being in business, and this is 1993 it was made. All right, tell you what, I'm going to stand back because I expect this will be loud, and I want to make sure I get a good recording of it, all right? Okay. Here we go, Paul, at the Accordion Museum. You gotta make a polka. Thank you. 
to go. If I weren't holding this microphone, I'd be clapping. But <laughs> you should have been dancing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that would be good for picking up the audio, but I was inside. Yes, I understand. Everybody, everybody comes in here and just it's an amazing place. Um, and it's the best job in the world that I've ever imagined having. Because it beats being a CPA because that's oh, what you did. Oh, my God. I'm a retired CPA, and, uh, you know, it wasn't exactly a lot of fun. But here, everybody comes in here, and they crack a smile immediately. And it's really interesting because it makes no difference. Democrats, Republicans, we probably even had a couple of terrorists in here. It just levels the playing field. We all, all of a sudden, we don't know names or what have you, and uh, we're laughing and we're, we're having fun. The music is kind of like a glue that brings us together. Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. Embracing what's fun with Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080.